Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing in our series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men, with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we'll be looking at a message entitled, Understanding Our Transformation, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 7 to 11. I genuinely believe that many people have an unclear view of salvation. On the one hand, it's really quite simple, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's simple. Of course, the reason we need to be saved is because we have become convinced that our sins have placed us under the wrath of God, and with this knowledge, it is salvation that we desperately need. Furthermore, we may trust in Jesus to save us, but very soon on we learn how it is possible that he is able to save us. It's because of his substitutionary death on the cross in which he bore our sins away. And we soon learn that to believe means more than I simply agree with these facts. You know, we know that the issue of faith is a tricky business in our culture. On the one hand, there are those who believe that faith entails believing in something that's not substantiated by facts. Well, biblical faith has nothing to do with that idea, and for others, faith is simply being religious. But in the Bible, faith is used in two distinct ways. Whenever it's used as a noun, as in the faith, it refers to the sum total of historic Christian truths found in the Bible. Now, used in that way, it refers to that which we know to be true. Now, in this sense, it does refer both to intellectual knowledge and to a heartfelt embrace of that which has been revealed to us by God. But most often, the word faith is used as a verb in the Bible. You know, in that sense, faith is a synonym for trust or for confidence. To believe is to place my confidence for my salvation and for my life completely into the hands of Christ. Now, once we do that, it's a sign that a transformation has begun. How could I trust in Christ when by nature my sinful soul finds him unacceptable? And yet if someone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So what's new? Well, the day after our conversion, we can look into the mirror and find out we look exactly the same. Indeed, our body is still subject to death and dying as it was the day before our conversion. And second, There are some that will argue with me, but I'm as convinced as ever about what I'm about to say. The flesh, that cyclical, habitual, downward tendency towards sin continues. But something is entirely new, and what's new is my heart. The center of my affections have been changed, and whereas once I loved the world, and I loved self-indulgence, I loved anything rather than my Creator, but now... After my conversion, I find no greater love than to know him who both created and redeemed me. And that's transformation. But now transformation is felt in every area of my life. And what greater area can there be than the area of my money and the place in my life where I deal with those who have wronged me? But it's in these two areas that we show that really all things have been made new. Now, in the Corinthian church, it would seem from reading 1 Corinthians 6 that already there had been some well-known cases where members of that church had taken other members of that church to court. Now, if you've been following this series, you've heard me say that there are times in our culture where it's impossible for believers to avoid the law courts, such as the case in an insurance claim where at times a lawsuit cannot be avoided. 
But let's assume for a moment that a woman is seeking protection from a violent or abusive husband. You know, these kinds of things can be unavoidable. Believers will go to law courts in many cases such as this. But from reading this text, it seems that Paul is addressing a very specialized kind of lawsuit. This is the kind of lawsuit that involves a business practice in which fraud is being charged. So let's begin with our text. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 6, verses 7 to 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And so at the outset, let's make sure we understand. Paul is not arguing that Christians can never go to court against another Christian. Let's assume for a moment that a so-called Christian commits a crime against another Christian. Should the victim or a witness to the crime go to court? And the answer is yes, it's a criminal matter. But Paul has in mind a situation where one believer is cheating another believer out of money. Now, at first, he commands that each local church have a way of providing justice in the household of God, a kind of justice that provides for repentance and church discipline and reconciliation and discipleship and Christian teaching. For Paul knows that this kind of a matter is really all about whether someone has truly encountered a transformation, a new heart, where all things are made new. But now Paul takes it one step further. What if the entire church will not obey the biblical command to provide justice? What then? And it's here that Paul gives a most radical answer. In that case, the offended brother should accept personal financial loss rather than provide an opportunity for the wider watching community to mock the Christian gospel and the testimony of Christ. To go to court would be to slander the gospel. Now, it's at this point that some of us, well, we're shocked. If a Christian man defrauds a Christian brother and the church sticks its head in the sand and provides no justice— The offended brother should then decide not to take it any further. Rather, he should just suffer the loss. And if this is so, we might say, then the evildoer gets away with it. Indeed, he or she is freed to continue the fraud knowing that he or she is protected by 1 Corinthians 1 verse 6. And that sounds wrong to us. Now, to that, I would respond in three ways. First, please remember that our God is sovereign. In the end, we need to remember that the evildoer is not getting away with anything. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And second, also remember that God provides providential care for those who obey. As Joseph said to his brothers who wronged him, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Indeed, some of the greatest tragedies in our lives are orchestrated by God for the long-term eternal benefit of God's chosen beloved. And third, please remember that with all acts of sacrificial forgiveness that we offer in this life, we are learning to identify with Christ who forgave us so far more than we will ever forgive one another. Now, in brief, let me suggest three instructions that might help believers avoid court situations that would bring disgrace to the cause of Christ. One, insist on positive outcomes. Insist that in all things, you as one transformed by Christ will not be spiritually defeated. Look again at the beginning of verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. 
That's because victory for us as transformed believers is that the watching culture admires the gospel of Jesus and how it transforms lives. Tell yourself, under no circumstances, regardless of the personal cost, will I allow the church of Jesus Christ to be mocked by the wider watching culture. That would be utter defeat, and I will not accept defeat for the cause of Christ. Second, submit to the way of Christ. According to the last half of verse 7, the way of Christ is to accept suffering of wrong. That's what our Lord did on the cross. He taught us as he prayed for the very men who are driving in the nails. He taught us to do good to those who would despitefully use us. That doesn't mean we become doormats or that we put up with abuse, but it does mean a strong and principled commitment that we will not take revenge into our own hands. And three, let's never participate in evil ourselves. That's why in verse 8, Paul warns that we not become involved in perpetrating evil. That becomes a possibility, especially when we have opportunity to finally get the evildoer back. But when we do that, we become like the evildoer. You know, some time ago, I read a a brief biography of C.S. Lewis. You know, Lewis was a soldier in World War I, and, and before he and a friend went off to war, Lewis promised his friend that if his friend should die, he would take responsibility for his mother. Well, that friend did die, and in his early 20s, right into his 50s, Lewis kept his word. It was a huge financial burden to him, and as I understood it, that woman was a very difficult woman to put up with indeed, but Lewis would not break his word. See, indeed, I have found that the entire Christian way of life can be an imposition on our plans. It can demand sacrifice that we didn't know when we signed up for the Christian life. But even though it's a sacrifice, and even though I might suffer the abuse of others, I find that living for the fame and the glory of Christ Jesus my Lord is oh so satisfying. I would have it no other way. For I have received Christ into my heart, and whenever any man or woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new, and that's demonstrated in the way we live. To be a Christian, to live for Christ, means that we live with a new set of standards, even when it may cost us something. Well, more from Dr. Neufeld when we return. Our friend and monthly partner, Ellen, wrote us this note. The Bible teaching I receive from Back to the Bible is of an outstanding caliber, and Dr. John Newfeld's delivery of the content is thoughtful, honest, and clear. I'm so happy that the program is available to me daily in my home and to others across Canada. I want it to continue, and that's why I chose to become a monthly partner. Ellen, among hundreds of others, have chosen to join our Partner to Tell monthly partnership program. Their gifts every month have become the backbone to this and all of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. If you value the teaching of Dr. Neufeld, the encouragement from Laugh Again, or the importance of in doubt speaking into the lives of young people, would you join this important group today? Become a Back to the Bible Canada Partner to Tell monthly partner by calling one 800 663 2425 or visit backtothebible.ca Now how should Paul end this discussion of Christians suing one another for fraud and then taking one another to court? Well, he does so by appealing to the transformation that all believers have encountered. 
I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, before we look at the details, let's stand back from the trees and have a good look at the forest. None of those who exhibit the old nature that remains unchecked will inherit the kingdom of God. The essential aspect of conversion is that Christ changes lives. See, I need to press that point, for it seems to me that this is so often ignored. I hear parents sometimes describing their children who are clearly unregenerate and yet saying, well, I know that Johnny or Susie prayed the sinner's prayer when he or she was eight years old. Now, I hope you hear what we do. We're content to deny 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 that teaches that conversion means that we are washed from the sins that once dominated us. And secondly, we stop pleading for our children's salvation, which is exactly what we should be doing in those cases. You see, some of us have reduced the Christian faith to an easy believism in which we place our hope not in Christ and in his ability to make all things new, but in the sinner's prayer, in the hope that once having uttered the right words, even if all the evil remains exactly as it did before, well, it should be fine. But that's clearly not the case. So let's look at the details. And such were some of you, says Paul. This is how you used to behave until Christ got a hold of you. Well, how did they behave? Well, Paul gives 10 characteristics of the unregenerate, unredeemed life, and let's follow his train of thought. The first word is the Greek word for sexual immorality. This refers to those people who have sexual relations with people who are not their spouses. In today's world, especially among church people, this needs to be stressed. See, are you thinking of having an extramarital affair? Those who engage in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God straight up. See, are you shocked? Now, it's clear that a Christian can commit such a sin, but a Christian will then repent, turn from it, and pay whatever cost must be paid in order to make things right. See, if not, if we persist in it, make excuses, carry on, then hear this. The Bible everywhere in both Testaments calls this matter an abomination. Such activity is strongly forbidden of us, and no one who commits this will remain unaffected. Second, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you worship any false god or follow a false religious system and then pretend to worship the Lord at the same time, you do not belong to the Lord. Third, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, here, Paul takes special aim at the married. In essence, what he said regarding sexual immorality has already been covered in this category, but Paul is not satisfied with that. He demands that the married hear a very special warning directed at them. And then 4 and 5 are probably the most offensive of all things that the apostle mentions in this passage. The ESV, which is the Bible that I'm using, translates those two words as one phrase. It simply says, men who practice homosexuality. But in the original language, there are two different words. The first is malakoi, which refers to men who take the 
passive role in the homosexual relation. And second is arsenikotoi, those who take an active role in such relationships. Now, Paul uses both terms because in the Greek world, those who took the effeminate role were often condemned, and those who took the masculine role were often justified. But in Paul's way of thinking, neither of those distinctions make a difference. Both are an offense before God. Now, it is at this level that I fear one of two equally wrong approaches. One approach wants to raise a loud public cry against homosexuality. To those who think this way, I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5.12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? See, it's time for believers to stop crusading against homosexuals in the wider culture. You know, after all, we've not mounted a crusade against those who don't give thanks to God for all things. And clearly, this is a greater sin. See, it's time we stop making this an issue of public policy, for the New Testament simply doesn't talk that way. But the second objection comes from those who feel the church has treated homosexual people harshly in the past. You know, even though it's far beyond the scope of what we can do here today, let me summarize my response. Nowhere does the Bible claim that homosexuality is worse than, let's say, adultery. You know, if one compares the mention of various sins, adultery made it into God's top ten, and homosexuality did not. Hence, there is no biblical warrant to single out homosexuality as deserving of special treatment. Furthermore, for believers— We are well served not to use the language of our culture when we define ourselves. There are all manner of believers who struggle with same-sex attraction, even as there are believers who struggle with lust, with greed, or with a host of other issues. But we do well to define ourselves in terms of the new nature of Jesus and not with the temptations that besiege us. See, I encourage believers to define themselves as being in Christ. As a believer, never say that you're gay. Rather, say you're in Christ, but that you struggle with same-sex attraction if you do, which you are seeking to bring daily under the lordship of Christ and gain victory over it. Well, there's so much more that can be said, but let's continue with Paul's thinking. Six and seven, thieves and the greedy will not inherit the kingdom. We learn that a part of the new nature is to be content with what we have and to thank God in it. Eight, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom. I note that believers are forbidden from drinking to excess. And nine revilers, those are those who destroy the reputation of others by slandering their character. A great many people have learned to get ahead in life by destroying others through what they say about them. And that's a sin. And finally, ten, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom. And here Paul comes back to the issue of lawsuits and those in the church who have defrauded others, which, of course, was the cause of the lawsuits in the first place. Clearly, he is calling for those who have taken advantage of believers to consider if this is what they do, then it may be an indication that they have never belonged to Christ in the first place. But then he tells those in the church of Jesus that while this was their pattern before they came to Christ, now he tells them of what Christ did to this sexually broken and and financially broken and, and relationally broken group of people. Indeed, Christ did three things for the Corinthian church. First, says Paul, you were washed. Clearly, Paul is referring to regeneration here. 
In Titus 3, verse 5, he speaks of the washing of regeneration. This refers to the new birth, the receiving of a new heart, where once we loved what was evil, but now we love what is of God. We were born again. And then second, says Paul, you were sanctified. You know, this is the process wherein we are being made holy through the power of the Holy Spirit. The fleshly impulses are being broken inside of each one of us by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And third, we were justified. Our standing before God, which was once that we were objects of wrath, but now God judges us by the righteousness of Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that salvation is liberation from evil. And this is simply a wonderful verse. See, some in Corinth were entirely sexually immoral, and some of them were thieves, and some of them were professional swindlers. But when they met Jesus and were introduced to the cross, they bowed the knee, and then they were washed in his blood, and they were made holy, and none of their past sins ever counted against them again. You know, perhaps if you're listening, you need to be washed in the blood of Christ. Today, my listener, if you surrender to Christ, he promises to deliver you. You can be made whole. You can be made clean simply by an act of surrender to Christ. Now, for the Corinthian church, Paul tells them that this truth affects the way in which they treat each other. It affects their sexual choices. It affects how they deal financially with each other. So as we continue through this passage, keep on listening and keep learning how the entire new life of Christ affects the culture that we develop as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of his glory. John, you know, we all make uh, sin choices. We all have different things that we have a propensity towards. I think you called it sin styles at one point. But how should we identify ourselves? Should we identify ourselves with those sinful natures? Yeah, there's two things here. One is that sin style thing. I mean, I know individuals who can't be in a room where there's money lying around. They could never be somebody who would count the offering because they're so drawn towards a sin of theft. So what they need to do is simply separate themselves from that. But should they identify themselves as a thief? And my response is no. They should identify themselves as a servant of Jesus Christ, but they should be aware of their weaknesses and they should do everything that they can to stay away from situations where they can be overtly tempted because they are learning to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and the new nature that Christ has imparted to them. So that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow at Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada, Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and the Back to the Bible ministry team has just returned from our second Israel experience, and what a blessing. Each year we've left knowing that some were left behind because of a designed limited capacity and our desire to ensure a uniqueness of intimacy with each event. Well, the uniqueness of intimacy is a non-negotiable, but we also want to make sure as many as possible have opportunity to participate in Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience. So even though we've just returned, we're announcing the Israel Experience 2019 today. Join us April 28th through May 6th, 2019, and consider including the Jordan Extension from May 6th through May 11th, 2019. 
Last year, we were booked to capacity in only the first few months, so don't be disappointed. Call today for all the 2019 Israel Experience information you'll need at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.